1: Hey, quick note. There are English and Spanish episodes of Anything for Selena. This is the English one. Si quieres escuchar en español, vuelve al feed y selecciona la versión con el título en
2: español. Produced by the iLab at WBUR, Boston.
0: I remember the first question was, so what do you know about Selena? And there was no guidance of like how to answer that question. So I just like (laughs) threw everything out there that I knew, you know, I was like, just, it was just like word vomit of like, you know, about (laughs) Selena.
1: That's Kristen Torres. She's the first producer of Anything for Selena. She's telling me about the day
0: she came to interview for the job. I wore my little business professional outfit or whatever, which I actually would never wear. But I didn't know. I didn't know. Like, I had no idea what to wear. So I was like, here's my little nude flats and, um, you know, my little trousers or whatever. I remember... Kristen,
1: in her casual business wear, talking about growing up as a third-generation Mexican-American in Fresno, California. She told me about how her older sisters idolized Selena and dressed like her, and how the girls in her Catholic school always lit candles for Selena. I thought Kristen was insightful and sharp, but there was something about her background that confused me a little bit. We're sitting in the office, and I'm looking at your resume, and it's like, okay, a master's from Harvard, an expert in, like, Russian literature and language. Kristen had just completed her second master's degree in Russian politics. She already had one in Russian literature. She spoke Russian fluently. So I wondered... What could her very specific expertise on another culture, on Russia, bring to a project about Selena and Latino identity? Well, the more I learned about how Kristen ended up in front of me that day, the more I realized that her story needed to be in this podcast. Because I knew that we had to go way deep on one specific aspect of Selena's legacy— It's something that comes up again and again when people talk about Selena. And I could see it all over Kristen's story. I'm Maria Garcia, and this is Anything for Selena, a podcast about belonging. Spend a year of your life hearing people talk about Selena, and you'll start to notice a pattern.
2: She was learning how to speak in Spanish. You know, she primarily knew English, so a lot of people can relate to that. And so, like, they are sort of looking down their nose at you for not speaking Spanish or not pronouncing the words correctly.
0: Something that I'm still working towards is my Spanish
1: fluency. Some of Selena's most beloved moments are when she struggled in Spanish, like on this infamous clip from her appearance on Cristina, where she got a roaring laugh from the audience for saying the number 14 wrong.
2: Te voy a decir un secreto. A ver. Casi todos <laughs> los diseñadores ponen si es un 16, lo ponen que es un 14. un 14. 14, perdón. 14. Así se habla. Así, ese es Tex Mex, Tex Mex, diez y cuatro. <laughs> Pero me entiendes, ¿verdad? <laughs> Catorce, disculpe. Y para Selena says para the p-
1: equivalent p- of ten and four instead of fourteen. Cristina is like, that's so Tex Mex, and Selena's like, will you understand me? Don't you? Sure. People would poke fun at her sometimes.
2: Ya va. Si me acuerdo cuando llegó Selena al show de Johnny Cash no sabía ni una palabra en español.
1: This is a clip from the Johnny Canales show, when Selena was already super famous. And Johnny Canales is still like, oh, remember when you were a kid and you didn't speak any Spanish, just the word for money?
2: La única palabra que le decía a su dinero, dinero. Papi, donde está mi dinero? Es todo. Y ahora es papi, donde está mi dinero y en el mall.
1: And Selena just plays along. It was one of her signature things, never taking herself too seriously. I mean to speak Spanish. And there's this, one of the most famous and most quoted lines of the 1997 biopic, when Selena's getting ready to give her first big press conference in Mexico. Flanked by journalists, she tries to explain in Spanish how she feels.
2: (laughs) ¿Tienen preguntas? Tu visita a México, ¿cómo te sientes? Pues, me siento muy orgullosa de estar aquí con todos ustedes y me siento muy, me siento muy excited.
1: I get why Selena didn't speak Spanish. Her father told me how she was mostly around white people as a little
2: kid. Well, you, you have to understand. That she was born in Lake Jackson, raised most of her young age in Lake Jackson. At that time, in Lake Jackson, there was only two Mexican families, two Mexicans. Us and another family. All the rest were Anglo people. Our neighbors, everybody in school, nothing but Anglos. So my kids grew up in that kind of environment. My wife didn't speak Spanish either. So it was easier for them to speak English and learn it better than... Even try to speak Spanish.
1: Not only did Selena not know Spanish, she also had a Texas twang, which stood out when the family moved from Lily White Lake Jackson to Corpus Christi. And so, when you all moved to Corpus Christi, was it different? I talked to Selena's sister, Suzette, about it.
2: Uh, oh, yeah. Very different. By that point, I'm like, what, 10th grade, midway 10th grade. And I remember the girls there were like, why do you talk like that? Why do you act like you're a white girl? And I'm like, what? And I was like, "I," it completely caught me off guard. I'm like, what? And they're like... You talk like a white girl, and I'm like, well, how is that? And then she, they would say, you just sound like you're white. I'm like, well, I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. There's a scene of little
1: Selena getting bullied for not speaking Spanish that didn't make the final cut for the biopic. Kids figure out she can't understand them, so they call her dumb and a witch.
2: Oh, I'm Selena. I'm from Lake Jackson. Eres bruja, niña, bruja. Ella no te entiende. Mmm. Entonces nosotros vamos a decir lo que nosotros queremos. Eres mensa, mocosa. Mira, los mocos se te salen por ahí. Even though
1: Selena didn't speak Spanish well, her manager father was determined to make her sing in Spanish. A cynical take, I guess, could be that he chose Spanish music for her as a strategic appeal to a bigger market in South Texas. The recent Netflix series kind of presents it this way. But Abraham Quintanilla told me it was personally important to him for his children to learn Spanish.
2: I wanted them to learn Spanish because we are Mexican-Americans. That's our native tongue, our mother tongue.
1: Selena never seemed to shrink when her Spanish wasn't perfect. She made something so derided into something charming, even endearing. People saw her grow into the language over the years and loved her for it.
2: Aquí en, en y en que me ayudan...
1: So why is this part of Selena's legacy? The way she spoke such a huge deal for people. Why is it? That even a quarter century later, the way Selena talked still seems radical and resonant. Well, I believe that the story we're about to hear, our producer Kristen's story, answers that question. So we're going to do something a little different here. We're going to stick with Kristen's story for a while. Because her story shows us why the way Selena spoke mattered so, so much. Kristen's story begins generations ago, in 1932. That's the year her grandmother... Carmen, was born in a migrant labor camp in San Juan Bautista, California. Her parents, Kristen's great-grandparents, had come to the U.S. from Jalisco, Mexico, in search of livable wages. They lived in a tent so they could easily move up and down California with the seasons, picking grapes, peaches, oranges. One of the few pictures Kristen has of her grandmother from this time shows Carmen in a dress made of potato sacks. Carmen spoke Spanish in the fields or with her family, but at school or in public, always
0: only English. This was an era where you really couldn't speak Spanish in public. It was something that you would get, you know, targeted for. Carmen
1: was born in the thick of the Great Depression, This is when local governments conducted informal repatriation raids. Officers would show up anywhere Mexican-Americans hung out and deport people to Mexico, even if they were U.S. citizens. Now we know the U.S. exiled about a million of its own citizens from their country. The offense? Looking or sounding Mexican. The federal government wasn't the one actually deporting people, but it implicitly approved of the raids, with President Herbert Hoover using the slogan American Jobs for Real Americans. And some cities banned Mexican Americans from government employment. In other words, being Mexican at this time in the world was hazardous. And Kristen's grandmother, Carmen, was born Into this world. Carmen spent her childhood imagining a life different from hers real walls instead of a tent, real clothes instead of potato sacks, a job that wasn't tending to the fields. The people who had those things all spoke English, English without an accent. So when Carmen had a daughter, whom she named Debbie, she mostly spoke English with her. And when Debbie had a daughter, Carmen made Debbie promise that she would not teach the baby Spanish. Debbie kept that promise. She purposely refrained from speaking Spanish to her daughter. That daughter
0: is Kristen. My grandma would say, she's going to get confused. Like, if you're teaching her from a young age, she's going into school, like, you don't want her to get tripped up and, you know, not learn how to read correctly or not learn how to write correctly because she's, like, thinking in Spanish. And, you know, you don't want her to have this accent that she can't lose.
1: Some of Kristen's earliest memories are of sitting around, bored to tears, while her mom
0: and grandmother watched telenovelas. I would be with my mom and my grandma, and they would be watching, like, there was this one show that went on forever. It was called, like, Morelia or something. Did you ever see that show? I would just be so bored, because they I would be sitting on like on the floor with them, like I was a kid and they'd be watching it, and they'd be crying because, like, Marelia and her long-lost love, or whatever the story was, like, they'd be crying, and they'd be laughing, and I would have no idea what was going on.
1: Other times, her mom and grandmother would speak Spanish to each other in hushed tones in the other room. Kristen would try to understand. Were they happy?
0: Worried? Was everything okay? Like, my mom and my grandma would speak Spanish to each other, and I would, like, have no idea what they were saying. And I would feel like, okay, well, you're communicating in this, like, secret language. Like, why can't I be part of it?
1: Kristen was in junior high when she started to realize that the language had been kept from her.
0: But she wasn't sure how to learn, where to start, even. I remember for a long time, especially in my teens, like, I was angry. I was angry that... There was this language that had been kept from me because had I been raised with it, it would have come to me easily. Like I just, it would have been a part of who I was. Growing up in California, Spanish was ubiquitous.
1: Kristen felt shame when people would speak to her in Spanish, assuming she knew it. But there was a particular moment when she decided she would
0: never learn. I guess I was probably in maybe junior high, I was at church with my mom. Uh, my family is Catholic. And, you know, we were leaving church, and I guess my mom kind of walked away to go talk to someone or something, and I was left alone. Two older women approached
1: Kristen to ask her a question in Spanish, but Kristen didn't understand.
0: I don't know exactly what they said. And they could tell that I didn't know what they said because I had this like glazed over expression, and I felt like I probably looked like a deer in the headlights. And all of a sudden, like, they just were, you know, they like their, their faces turned, like their faces just like, you know, turned into this scowl. What they said to her next would stay with Kristen forever. Shame on you. In English, they were like, shame on you. Shame on your mother. Shame on your family for not teaching you Spanish. You should know your language. Looking back, she says that was the moment the moment that
1: made her reject Spanish. But it was more than just language. Growing up, Kristen felt like the message she was getting from her family was that being Mexican-American was something you had to transcend. Progress, it seemed, meant creating distance between you and this identity. Kristen's grandmother wanted her to have a life filled with opportunities, one in which she could travel, do work that brought her joy instead of wearing out her body. To her grandmother, learning Spanish and being curious about her roots would be like going backward. So Kristen tried to forget, to put it behind her, and that led her somewhere unexpected.
0: It started in high school. I was in a AP world literature class and we read, uh, one of the units was Russian literature and we read Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And there's so much, it's so nerdy, like, but I loved it for several different reasons. One, I was an insufferable teenager who was like into philosophy and like existentialism and stuff. Kristen had been
1: raised a Catholic by her grandmother, Carmen. She remembers Carmen would talk to her about all these big, heavy topics about why people suffer, about why people live in poverty, about the meaning of life, about God. So Kristen fell in love with Russian literature. It felt like it touched this deep part of who she was how her grandmother had raised her to think about the world. It somehow felt familiar, but
0: also glamorously different from Kristen's own life. Our teacher, the AP Lit teacher, her name was Miss Fox. She would tell us that, you know, Russian literary culture, Russian culture reveres its writers. You know, there are monuments in Moscow, in the central square to Tolstoy. To, to Dostoevsky, to poets like Pushkin and Mayakovsky, and that was so alien
1: to me. There were no monuments to writers in Kristen's hometown of Fresno, considered perhaps the most uncool city of California, the kind of place that's the perpetual butt of jokes.
2: If you hate Fresno so much, why would you come back? My life is pretty sweet. You're a maid in Fresno.
0: No way we can come up with 25K in three days. We're in Fresno. I need you.
1: So when Kristen got to college, she tried to start a new life. She took Russian and tried to become a writer.
0: When I was in college, I really hoped that one day I would write like cultural commentary for like the New York Times or the New Yorker, the London Review of Books or that kind of like highbrow Stuff. And when you looked at who those writers were, you know, they were usually white guys who went to Ivy League colleges and they, you'd read their wiki pages and they would like, oh, I studied art history or I studied English literature or I studied history or the classics. And so with Russian, I was trying to give myself that kind of like liberal arts education, that kind of classical education that. I thought I needed to be able to talk about art and to be able to talk about culture.
1: Before choosing Russian as her foreign language course in college, Kristen briefly considered Spanish. But she remembered her grandmother's message that Spanish was like baggage that would weigh her down. She thought Russian would make her look serious, like she was from a family of college grads not like the first in her family to go to college. Best of all, no one expected her to speak it perfectly or shamed her for making mistakes. So after she graduated, she packed new bags, real bags, and set off for Russia.
2: There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators.
1: This is Postmortem The Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts.
0: In the dead of January, in the dead of Russian winter, I landed. In the Saint Petersburg airport, like in the middle of the night, I really didn't speak the language that well yet. I like could read it, but speaking it and understanding it was still very hard. And I had like a coat from Forever 21, this like olive green coat that at the time was like a popular item, um, but it had like no lining. I didn't have any gloves, but like I was still excited.
1: Kristen had come to Russia to take an all-expenses-paid internship to write about the art scene there for six months. She would get to try out her dream job, writing and thinking about art and culture in Russia. She vividly remembers the moment that it hit her. She had done it. She had completely changed her life.
0: This is what her grandmother had wanted for her. And I remember, like crossing this bridge in St. Petersburg and it was a beautiful sunny day and even though it was really cold and I had this like really inadequate jacket you know the sun was shining and the the the, the Neva River which is this famous river in St. Petersburg was below me and it was glistening and it was beautiful and I just remember feeling like <laughs> wow I'm like emotional sorry I just remember feeling like I made it. Like, I made it as far away. Like, I made it as far away as possible. Like, who would have ever thought that, like, I would be there?
1: In that moment, Kristen thought of all it had taken to get there. From lowly Fresno to opulent St. Petersburg. All the tiny decisions that had led up to this. The hard work her family did across generations to go from working in migrant labor camps to writing about art in
0: Russia. That was the whole idea, was that that hard work was going to eventually lead to something, eventually lead to someone being able to go travel or follow their dreams and, like, that person was me, you know, and there was a sense of, like, gratitude, but also, like, just, um, there was a sense of gratitude, but there was also a sense of guilt, like, why me, like, the idea that all of this effort, and hope, and, you know, money and everything that had been invested finally kind of paying off in me it felt like you know it felt like it was my achievement but it was also their achievement in the weirdest way like you know like getting to russia was the achievement of my grandmother and my mother and all of their work
1: A typical day for Kristen in Russia was a sequence of museums, exhibits, and studio tours. She interviewed painters and sculptors and even got to take some lessons herself. But in her downtime, Kristen found Russia hard to penetrate and often lonely. Kristen's first friends in Russia, besides other Americans, were migrant workers from neighboring Central
0: Asia. My... Physical appearance, I guess, has always been read as kind of ambiguous. People have always said, like, I can't really pinpoint what you are or where you're from. But in Russia, I was very clearly read as, like, Central Asian. They'd approach her on the street,
1: at bus stops, making conversation. A lot of them spoke broken Russian, just like Kristen. Kristen's Russian education up until this point hadn't prepared her for Russia's ethnic politics. There was tension, especially in big cities, between ethnic Russians and people from Central Asian countries. Migrants were often targeted by police, intimidated, their homes raided frequently. Kristen once heard an off-color comment from an American expat that Central Asians were the Mexicans of Russia.
0: And so I would go to the store or I would go get groceries and there was this little corner store, the cheapest store, because I had like almost no money. This little cheap store that I would go to, this discount store called Pichorichka. And I would go and this cashier would always be the same mean lady cashier. And she just hated me.
1: This woman would often try to intimidate Kristen when she came into the store. The clerk would mock Kristen's accent her slow ability to understand. Once, the woman grabbed Kristen's grocery basket and threw it at her head
0: before telling other customers not to help the foreigner. And this one time, I had come there like maybe five or six times, and out of nowhere, for no reason, I was buying a bag. I was literally buying three apples, and I paid for them with cash, with Russian rubles. There was no reason to card me. And just out of nowhere, she was like, show me your passport, show me your papers. You know, she had this, like, power trip, and she got this, like, security guard to come interrogate me about why I was in Russia and if I was there legally, and, you know, why I didn't speak the language very well. She was just like, you people, like, you come here and you don't speak our language, and, like, you don't speak it well, and, like, you expect people to understand you or whatever. And, you know, I started crying. Like, I was just so scared. In that moment, Kristen thought of her
1: grandmother, Carmen. She felt a compassion for Carmen she hadn't experienced yet. An understanding of why Carmen had been so adamant
0: not to teach Kristen Spanish. And I remember just thinking like, oh, so this is sort of what they were talking about. You know, this is sort of what they had in mind when they were saying, we want to protect you from having this experience where your accent or not being able to find the right words or the language that you speak can influence the kind of way you walk through the world. Yeah, I did have more compassion. And I think all of that was around the same time that I kind of let go of some of that anger and let go of some of that, you know, just bitterness, I guess.
1: After working on this podcast for several months, Kristen began to feel this renewed interest in learning more about where her family came from. And she started to think that maybe... Just maybe, she might even want to learn Spanish after avoiding it her whole life. I thought it would be good for Kristen to talk to her grandmother about this on tape. Kristen wanted to share this budding pride, this curiosity about her heritage that had come from working on this podcast. So flying to Fresno to interview Kristen's grandmother was always part of the plan. But then, last February, just before 2020 dissolved into the worst year possible for everyone, something changed. One night, after work, as she walked home from the bus stop, Kristen called her grandmother to wish her a happy Valentine's Day, but her uncle picked up the phone. He said her grandmother had just been taken away by the paramedics. It had all happened so fast. He didn't have any more details. In Boston, 3,000 miles away from her family in Fresno, Kristen began praying on the rosary her grandmother had given her just a month before. She prayed that she'd be able to see her grandmother one more time, that she would have time to fly home. The next morning, the phone rang. It was Kristen's mom. Her grandmother, Carmen, was gone.
0: It felt like all of a sudden this this huge weight of knowledge that I was never going to hear from her again and I could never ask her any of my questions. And I would never get to share with her what I was working on and I would never get to ask her all the things... We wanted to ask her about.
1: I knew I couldn't give Kristen an opportunity to talk to her grandmother. But I had another idea. I wanted to connect her with somebody who I thought would make her feel less conflicted about her Spanish and her identity. Maybe it could help her on this journey to making peace with herself and her past. So I set up a meeting, a virtual one because of COVID.
2: Thanks for the invitation to talk, to to get off the beaten path of uh, pure politics and talk about something fun.
1: With former presidential candidate Julian Castro. He's one of the highest profile non-Spanish speaking Latinos out there, or non-fluent at least, Remember the last Democratic primary when a bunch of candidates flaunted their Spanish to connect with Latino voters? Julian Castro was not one of them.
2: I've n- I haven't spent the time that it would require to actually become fluent in it. Uh, you know, I guess I've made peace with that at the age of 45. <laughs>
1: Julián is also a third-generation Mexican-American like Kristen. So I wondered if talking to him would help Kristen untangle some of her feelings.
2: Well, you know, my grandmother, of course, came from Mexico and spoke Spanish. Uh, And then my mother, when she was growing up, she learned to speak Spanish more slowly because English was the dominant language in school. And she and her peers would get punished, hit with a ruler or punished in other ways for speaking Spanish in school.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Mr. Secretary, I'm wondering, and this is like, you know, something that I felt a lot growing up. And so I'm just curious if you've ever felt the same way. You know, sometimes I feel very conflicted, like I want to learn Spanish so that I can connect with my roots and, and my history that way. But then I get this conflicting feeling that in doing so, I'm kind of validating people who say I should be ashamed for not knowing it and that my family should be ashamed for not teaching me. And I'm wondering if you've ever felt that tension and if you do how you've dealt with it.
2: I don't think anybody should be shamed either way. You know, there was a time when Generations before ours were shamed because they only spoke Spanish or that was their dominant language. They were shamed for not speaking English. And now, unfortunately, in some quarters, you have folks who are shamed Latinos for not speaking Spanish. And those, those two are not the same. They come, I think, from different places, but sometimes they have the same effect, which is to devalue people. And suggest that somehow they don't measure up as human beings, and that's not true. Uh, I still believe that over the course of the next few years, I will get fluent in Spanish. <laughs> but you know, I, at this point, I don't feel this burning need to do that to validate to anybody who I am or I'm not. Like I know who I am, and. You know, I'm I'm confident in the fact that there are a lot of folks who had my upbringing who also are not fluent in Spanish, that they're every bit as much Latina or Latino as anybody else.
1: Kristen's story shows us why seeing Selena embrace Spanish, no matter how much she struggled, was so profound. Because for generations before Selena, some of us, like Carmen... Had to let go of the language to survive. And others, like Kristen, were made to feel shame if they got Spanish wrong, made to feel inadequate. But Selena was the opposite of inadequate, even with her halting Spanish. It's like she took these decades of trauma around a language and somehow made it vanish
2: y me siento muy uh, muy claro, bien de poder hacer este un I de de la musica. Bueno, cuando Michigan, este, pues, I mean, junior high. Este, you know, cada no sé cómo dicen es en español, dos pep rallies. No, no sé, the pep rallies en español. Kristen has
1: been on this Selena journey with me from the beginning. We've been actively thinking about, researching, listening to Selena full time for more than a year. Constantly hearing her voice, Selena's speech, her articulation, her sound—it's always on my mind. Yes, do you want me to fix this for you? Oh,
2: yeah, will be here. Look oh. up. Thank you. <laughs> oh, no, don't worry. Man.
1: This is what we mean when we say. She sounded like us. The way Selena spoke or didn't was powerful because it told a story. The way language tells a story about all of us. How we speak holds our histories. Language is how we connect through generations. Kristen's grandmother, my son. I've tried to pass Spanish to my son, but it's been a little hard, and I talked to Kristen about it. I'm much more comfortable talking with my son in English, and now he's six, and he's lost it. Like, he, I realized it, like, this summer. Like, I thought, I thought he could still speak some Spanish. Like, I thought he could still hold a conversation. And then we got here to El Paso, you know, so I could write this podcast. And I realized, like, oh, my God, my son cannot communicate with his cousins. He cannot communicate with my grandmother, with my mom, like, not extensively. You know, he he tells my mom, like, te quiero mucho, mama, you know, like, I love you. But he can't talk about what he's into, you know. And my son still struggles My son still can't, like, can't fully speak Spanish. And the other day I talked to him and I said, look, Jael, Spanish is your language. It's always going to be there, mijo. It's always going to be there for you because it's part of you, because it's part of us. And you can always go back and access it. And it's going to take work, but you can do it because it's yours. It's yours, too. I'm not concerned with my son speaking proper Spanish. The pursuit of perfect Spanish, to me, is often rooted in white supremacy, the remnants of colonialism, a cruel system that made European language the standard and sought to eradicate our indigenous roots. I'm not interested in Spanish for Spanish's sake. But I want to teach my son what La Reina said. It's never too late to ask who you are, to explore yourself, to ask what stories language holds for you. For me, my border Spanglish is my birthright. And I want my son to know that even though our language is not entirely from here, or from there, it is whole, we are whole. This episode is dedicated in memory of Carmen Franco-Games, Kristen's grandmother. Next week, we go down an internet
0: rabbit hole. Selena, sweetie, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. A quarter
1: century after her death, Selena is breaking the internet. On social media and platforms that weren't even imaginable when she was still alive. You guys can... Understand that everything you read on social media is not true. We'll tell you about Selena's legacy in memes. And how people online grapple with the void she left behind. That's next time on Anything for Selena. If you like this episode, join us for an after-party on Instagram Live, where we'll tell you about the making of the episode, chat with special guests, and have a little drink together. Start your weekend with us every Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on Instagram. Find us at selena underscore podcast. Anything for Selena is a co-production of the iLab at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. And Futuro Studios. I'm your host, Maria Garcia. Our producers are Kristen Torres, Antonia Cerejido, and Juan Diego Ramirez, with additional production assistance from Frank Hernandez, Sandra Riano, and Maria Alexa Cavanaugh. Mixing and sound design by Paul Weidkiss. Our editor is Marlon Bishop. Ben Brock-Johnson is the executive producer of the iLab and contributed production management and editing. Iliana Galvez created the artwork for this series. Some original music for this episode was composed by Paul Vajkis. Find out more about Anything for Selena on Twitter and Instagram at selena underscore podcast and at wbur.org slash anything for selena.